This is an AMI podcast. I want to acknowledge that this podcast was produced and hosted on the unceded ancestral and traditional lands of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh First Peoples. I feel honored to live, work, and play on these lands. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Accessing Art with Amy. I'm your host, Amy Amanti. My pronouns are she, hers. Leona Godin, my guest today, is an academic, a writer, a storyteller, a performer, and an explorer of the arts. And I had the pleasure of meeting her during the, let's say, the silver lining of the pandemic. Identifying with blindness, as I do, I quickly learned how much her and I have in common, except that she has the gift of writing. But... I also learned that her and I have a shared dream of blind culture becoming something that bonds our community together. So let's jump right on in and welcome, all the way from her home in New York City, here's Leona. Hi, this is Leona, and I am a white-ish person. I am of Greek origin, but I identify as she, her, and I am a blind person. Leona, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. I mean, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I've been a fan of yours for a while. We've been in spaces together and it's just, it's a delight for me to to share what I know about you with the Accessing Art with Amy podcast listeners. So let's start by talking a little bit about, you know, right off the top, you identified as being a blind person, um, but I also know you as a, as a writer and a creator and a performer and a theater maker. I think you probably wear as many hats as I do. So uh-huh. let's maybe just jump in with this idea of uh, writing. Let's start with writing and, and how it is you got into writing. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, I think I've been writing since I, w- I was a kid for sure. Um, you know, I, I struggled for a long time because when I was when I was young, and um, you know, being a reader and being a writer, those two things go together, of course. Mm-hmm. And so, when I was about ten, the very beginnings of of retinal degeneration started happening. But by the time I was like a mid teenager, by the by the time I was like sixteen, seventeen, I really couldn't access regular sized print anymore, and there were no other possibilities at that time. So I feel like all the the things that were of interest to me as a kid, you know, reading Poe stories and wanting to mm. write and wanting to act and taking acting classes and all of the fun stuff that I was kind of going in this direction. This was back in the stone ages, right? And so there, <laughs> there weren't really a lot of other possibilities, especially for somebody who was, you know, what might've been called kind of a high partial back in those days. So, right. um, you know, I didn't appear to be blind in any kind of ways. I, I just couldn't read, you know, and so nobody, you know, tried to teach me Braille or anything like that. So there was no alternatives. And I feel like my reading and writing and acting kind of budding self got a little bit squashed for some time. And so, you know, it really took a lot of years of, of getting access and getting technology. And now, you know, I can be not just a reader, but I can be part of like a writerly community. And that has so much to do with the digital age. You know, I mean, even simple things like wanting to be a writer, but not being able to access 
like lit mags and things like that, you know, right. where, where kind of the forefront of young writers would be was, was something that was totally inaccessible for so many years. So although I was writing, I feel like I wasn't really part of a writerly community. I ended up going in this kind of academic direction because um, I feel like, you know, the easier place to go, or the path of least resistance for a lot of us is staying in school. You know, I used to joke with my mom, like, well, you told me to stay in school, you know, and <laughs> 20 years later, like it's got my here. PhD. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, st- I stayed in school. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and, you know, you have a PhD and I, I guess I, I, I really should have introduced you as Dr. Leona. Um, and so uh, maybe tell us a bit about what your PhD is in. Sure. I, I got my PhD in English literature. I was kind of focused in on the 17th and 18th centuries. I was really interested in sort of early modern science technologies of seeing things like the telescope and the microscope and kind of how that related to concepts of blindness in, in literature and philosophy and things like that. I can't even imagine for somebody like me who I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not an uneducated person, but I don't come close to touching a PhD. So that seems to me to be like, I don't know, it, it almost it almost is a huge mountain to climb in my world because I just yeah. I don't have the uh, the discipline to remain in school for that many years. <laughs> so I don't know if I do either. You know, what's really <laughs> funny is that I, I say, you know, somewhere along the lines of getting my PhD, I kind of I, I talk about this in, in Their Plant Eyes in my book. I, I, you know, I kind of fell off the grad school rails. And I tell you what, this is kind of funny. I got this wonderful dissertation grant. So I was, you know, doing really well in my first few years of graduate school, got this dissertation grant to write my dissertation, which meant that I had an awful lot of time on my hands. Right. And I also had just gotten my first guide dog. And so all of a sudden, like traveling at night was like so much easier. So what do I do with this extra time and little extra cash and stuff? I start frequenting open mics of the Lurie side of New York City and start sort of moonlighting as a performance artist. And and my goodness, everything sort of shifted after that. <laughs> right. Where the academic starts to blur into the artistic, right? And it's like a yes. revisiting. Now, now, now the world feels like the arts are more open than maybe they were when you were growing yeah. up. Absolutely. I mean, that was such a that was such a huge part of it. And then suddenly, you know, I become kind of the weirdo in the, you know the the performance art scene where I'm sort of chanting, you know, Renaissance British poetry, you know, with a crazy wig on, Marie Antoinette wig on, and and my guide dog and loop pedals and an accordion and. <laughs> on and what on. an image <laughs> what an image um, i wish i had been there i wish i'd been there to experience it maybe one day i'll get to to new york city and maybe one day you'll be like hey i'm doing an open mic come check me out um, i know it's one of those things where it's like i have kind of put all my eggs into the getting back to the writing thing back into the sort of the writing basket and now i feel like man i kind of miss my performance self you know so finding mm-hmm. that balance like even within the arts is not easy. I know you can relate. <laughs> yeah. I, and sometimes people get to know you for a certain artistic thing that you do. And then when you do something different, they're like, oh, well, but, but she's a writer, you know, or the, you know, yeah. I'm not a painter, but then when I try painting, people are like, but she's a performer, not a painter. And they get yeah. confused. And I'm like, no, listen, I, I want to try anything that I can get my hands on. 
Oh, I, you know, it's funny. I, years ago, I, I was painting. I just thought of this recently too, because I, I always talk about the fact that I would love someday to go to art school. If not just like for me, but just because I think it would be really fun to make artists kind of deal with a blind person in their yeah. midst, you know, visual artists and stuff. And, and also to be like, hey, art is not just the visual, you know, and That's just right. tor- basically torture everybody. I know a couple of folks who their identifying terms are, I'm a non-visual artist. And I nice. thought it was kind of kind of cool to to frame it that way, and that it's like, oh, but I can't steal that because somebody else has already used it. But anyways, but I, I I feel that way about art myself because I I love art so much that I'd love to explore things like glass blowing and welding, and it's wow, just about finding yeah. the people that are willing to teach me truly because they have to put up with a blind person in a very maybe dangerous space. But that doesn't mean I'm giving up looking. <laughs> it's so funny because I was so sort of distracted by like, how do I describe myself in terms of like, you know, ethnicity and disability that I kind of forgot about like the art thing. You know, so there you That's go. That's okay. You know, you're an artist at heart that never goes away. So let's, um, Leona, you touched on their plant eyes. So let's talk a little bit about that. Where did the idea for this book come from? What is this book about? Well, you know what? It, it's a very um, humble project of kind of outlining like 2,000, 3,000 years of blindness in Western culture. Mm-hmm. A very humble project. And it's really a culmination of everything. It really is kind of the cross section of me as a person going blind for all of my life, for me as an artist, kind of exploring things like Helen Keller in vaudeville, which was what my solo show was. And, mm-hmm. um, and then also as an academic kind of interests in the history of the invention of Braille. And so it really, and then kind of tropes of blindness, you know, having to do with Homer, the blind poet and the blind profit. And so it really is kind of everything that I've been thinking about for like the last few decades in mm-hmm. many different modalities. And and then the, the actual title comes from um, Blind Poet Extraordinaire from, from um, John Milton, who's kind of smack dab kind of in the middle of the book uh, in the 17th century. He writes Paradise Lost um, as a blind, as a blind poet. Right. So this this book is going to appeal to lots of folks for lots of different reasons, but certainly I would hope that it appeals to folks in the blind and low vision community simply because of its content about like learning about these kinds of things through history. Yeah, and I really I'm such a cheerleader of the idea of blind culture. You know, it's something yeah, that I think too. that our community hasn't really hasn't totally embraced it. I, I think mm-hmm. that there's a lot of feeling like we want to be included, which is of course important. But the other side of it is shifting, you know, our ocular centric culture a little bit in our direction and, yeah. you know, and getting involved in doing things like podcasts. And also recently I've been really excited about smell and olfaction and, mm-hmm. and really promoting the arts um, where we're not so much worried about being included, but we can actually make art in a, in a way that we can shift perceptions in, in the wider mainstream culture. Yeah, very much what I think about in my artistic practice too. So um, I, I think it's one of the things I love so much about sharing space with you is because I feel like you get me and I get you. And I just love that. Yeah. I love it when I'm with, within spaces with people, um, blind folk, but also artist folk that just like are on the same wavelength. So Um, Thank you for sharing that perspective, because I think it's hugely important. And I think let's have a quick listen. Is there anything you want to do to introduce this little clip from their plant eyes? 
Sure. So it's from a chapter that kind of talks about the history of the white cane and also the history of sort of just using the cane long before it was codified as kind of a white cane and using it as both a tactile indicator as well as a sonic indicator of space. So I talk about echolocation as well. And this particular little bit that we're going to share is taken from James Joyce's Ulysses because it's the 100th year anniversary of Ulysses this year. It was Mm -hmm. first published in 1922. And it's really great because he's got this character called the blind stripling and he kind of tap, 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 taps his way through Ulysses. All right. Let's have a listen. There plant eyes. Bloom slid his hand between his waistcoat and trousers and, pulling aside his shirt gently, felt a slack fold of his belly. But I know it's whitey yellow. Want to try in the dark to see. This yearning to see in the dark echoes the meandering thoughts of the younger of the two protagonists in an early scene in Ulysses, when Stephen Dedalus analogous to Odysseus's son Telemachus, as well as to Joyce himself, experiments with blindness while walking on the beach. In an attempt to circumnavigate the ineluctable modality of the visible, he closes his eyes and uses his ash plant walking stick as a blind man's cane. I am getting on nicely in the dark. My ash sword hangs at my side. Tap with it. They do. Even if Joyce felt some kinship with the blind stripling, he was still a sight-oriented person who might think, as Stephen does, of the blind as they, as the other. Even so, Stephen notices that the moment he closes his eyes, he hears things he'd not noticed before, namely the crunching of rocks under his feet. Crush, crack, crick, crick. And then he finds himself contemplating the ineluctable modality of the audible, reminding us that our perceptions are, to some degree, a matter of attention, and that the attention itself is gripping. Okay, awesome. I mean, thank you for sharing that. I think it's it's lovely. And, and you wanted to touch on how you recorded this as an audiobook. So talk a little bit about that. Two years ago, when this book first started being a book, in so far as I sold it as a as a proposal, and you know I had an agent, it was going out on submission and all that stuff, I had it in my mind that I was going to get good enough at Braille because I've just been struggling with this for so many years. Get good enough at Braille to be able to read my audiobook. Well, you know, best laid plans. I did not uh-huh. quite get there. I'm I'm better. You know, I keep getting faster, but it's 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 hard as an adult, you know, to carve out time to basically learn how to read in a totally new modality. And I have been using audio for so many years. So mm-hmm. as a performer, I started reading poetry and things in open mics and I did it by using a little earbud in my ear and I would cut mm-hmm. the, the lines really short. And so I was reading with audio methods. And so when it came down to them asking me, the publisher Penguin Random House, if I wanted to read the book, I said, absolutely. But I have this really weird way of reading, right? I'm going to be reading by ear. They were understandably a little bit nervous about it. They were like, how in the world does this work? And I kind of explained to them, I can tuck my earbud, you know, under the the headphones and we should be good to go. And so it was, it was definitely a learning process. And I put a little disclaimer at the top of the, uh, of the audiobook that basically says, you know, there's all kinds of reading and I, I hope you enjoy this one. And I, just to 
to let them know, you know, that I'm reading with my earbud in my ear and that it was really important for me to, to express the fact that, you know, audiobooks are books, you know, there, there are different mm-hmm. ways of reading and, and to honor that. I hugely agree. And where do we find this audiobook if we want to download it or purchase it or? All the usual places. So from Audible to Libro FM, and it's also available through Bard. I don't know if that's available in Canada or not, but um, Mm. uh, through Bard and Bookshare has also got it for people that use Bookshare. And excitingly, the the soft cover is going to be coming out in August. So I'm really excited about that. Very cool. I'm really excited about it too. So Thank you for sharing that. And, and I think it's, it's, I think I, I'm encouraging our listeners to go grab a copy of this uh, audiobook or print or whatever format uh, works for you because it's, a, it's an interesting read. When you were talking a bit about the book, you mentioned being a performing artist and this piece um, that you did around Helen Keller in vaudeville. So talk a little bit to us about that. Yes, absolutely. So this is one of those moments that makes its way into the book, but it was definitely a performance piece. Um, as I said, I was kind of moonlighting as a performance artist and and still kind of trying to forge ahead as a, as a PhD candidate. And I read this book called The Radical Lives of Helen Keller. And in it, I just, there was this one little throwaway sentence that was, you know, that said that Helen Keller and Annie Sullivan had performed in vaudeville from 1920 to 24. And I was like, holy moly, how did I not ever hear of this before? Yeah. This is amazing. And so immediately I kind of put it aside and said, okay, I've got to finish the dissertation, you know, having a PhD, you know, maybe it's worthwhile, maybe not, but having half of a PhD is not worth anything. So I knew right. I had to <laughs> at least finish. And pretty much as soon as I finished, I turned around and created a show that was based on my research that I, I did about Helen Keller's time in vaudeville. And then just also really grappling with the idea of being a blind performer, uh, being a performer with disabilities. And, mm-hmm. you know, this was kind of before the time that I had ever heard of, and I don't think Stella Young had come up with the idea of inspiration, inspiration porn yet, porn, but yeah. yeah, I think it was a, a little before that time, but I was certainly grappling with some of those very ideas about what it means to, to, to be a performer and to be able to push the limits well beyond inspiration porn. And even how Helen, Helen Keller herself was trying to do that in, in her own vaudeville show. She was extremely political. I mean, I did kind of a a section that uh, just took verbatim her question and answer uh, time that she really managed to stick all of her like socialist politics, you know, in front, in front of these, these poor unsuspecting, you know, thinking they were getting some inspiration porn audience members um, and Mm -hmm. she was hitting them with, you know, anti-capitalist sentiments and stuff. So it's pretty awesome. (laughs) Talk about like, like covert art in a way, right? Absolutely. How fun is that? I I love it when (laughs) art makes me think about those kinds of things, but you've you've brought along a clip of this. Um, And I'm again, wondering if you want to set up this clip for us to listen to about this performance piece. This, you know, I mean, I didn't know anything about really being an actor. I hadn't, you know, done any kind of real theater since I was a kid and I, I made up this play and so it had three acts and one was sort of the kind of the intro dealing with things like Helen Keller jokes but also kind of setting up her life in a very particular way kind of saying how dynamic her life was mm-hmm. um, that that first act kind of ends with you know that famous water pump scene in the miracle worker and there's kind of this uh-huh. silly line about me saying you know I've got this evil voice that's me coming over the loudspeaker and and 
you know, the mean voice is like, oh, that's a lovely story. You know, that's all over with. And I'm like, but she's only seven at the end of the movie and she lives to be 87, you know. Right. And sort of moving past that. And then the, the second act was really almost taken verbatim from what she writes about her vaudeville uh, days and the question and answer period. And I also do a little cane dance in that part um, with my mobility cane, twirl it around and stuff. And then the third act, I kind of really go off the deep end a bit and kind of turn into more like a performance artist of my own persuasion. And so that's what this clip comes from is kind of me telling some, uh, some, some blind jokes, or I should say actually some sighted some cited jokes. So that's, <laughs> the that's what this is. Totally. <laughs> awesome. All right. We're going to have a listen. So I've thought about this a lot and I realized that sex is the great equalizer. You know, I don't, I don't feel my disability when I'm in bed with somebody. I don't feel like a blind person. Unless I get mixed up with some freak. <laughs> some freaky freak with a fetish for eye contact. <laughs> I love, I love, I love that joke. It's awesome. I'm going to have to figure out a way of using that because I think it's hilarious. And uh, I think just for context for folks to know, because it's a visual clip, obviously, of you on stage. Yes. I think maybe you can describe what it is, like what position you're in. Because uh, I think I'm it actually laying on the floor. I'm laying on the floor. I, I do this thing where actually at the beginning of Act Three, I actually come in onto the stage, kind of pushing these two loop pedals um, in front of me, and I do some pretty wild stuff. Um, I don't even know how I figured all this out, but now it seems like a complete mystery. But I had these two loop pedals, and I was doing this one act where I catch up bits of what I'm saying as, as, um, as I'm singing and doing jokes and stuff. And then at the end, I bring in like a bunch of quotes from Helen Keller and stuff. So when I'm telling that joke, I'm holding the microphone that's going into the loop pedal and I'm wearing this really wild outfit. Um, I had like two costume changes in this show. And uh, so the second act was very glamorous, but this one is just kind of a little bit weird. I'm, I've got like go silver goggles on top of my head and this kind of weird silvery feather boa around my neck. And I, and I've got the microphone real close to my mouth and I'm laying on the floor and kind of telling some dirty jokes. <laughs> yeah. The crazy eye contact fetish just, I think it's going to resonate with lots of, well, lots of folks in our community anyways. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Are you still performing this show in any way or have any, um, I don't know, I, I know pandemic times, there hasn't been a lot of performances, but any, I don't know, ideas or dreams of revisiting or reviving it? I think it was a little too much acting for my capabilities. I, I think doing it more like a storytelling type show, which it, it's almost ready to, to be that it, mm -hmm. on a certain level. I also, I would love to, to turn bits of um, their plant eyes into kind of a storytelling type show a little along the lines of, if you know, Mike Daisy, something that's a little bit like it might be a lecture, except that it's just very entertaining and, and right. kind of brings in because the storytelling tends to be something that's much more sort of personal stories. And I love when storytelling is able to kind of weave in other people's stories into the personal narrative. I, I just think it's it's not done enough. And I want it to do almost like a lot of narrative radio, I guess a lot of sort of narrative podcasts might do. So something like that would be so great. I did 
think about trying to do something this spring, but, you know, things are just going back and forth here in New York in terms of uh, allowing for that possibility. So I think it'll be maybe I might start entertaining doing a, a, a new performance next fall. Oh, gosh. And I don't know. I get my dreams are like, hmm, how can Amy and Leona collaborate on something? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. I think that would be so much fun. Leona, as I hear this sound effect going off in the background, it's telling me that it's time to play the mixed bag. Are you ready to transition into little fun, random questions? (laughs) I will do my best. Well, I I tell you, they're pretty painless, but the idea is just to, you know, throw some things in the space that, I don't know, connect us all as human beings in some way. Got it. Um, Love it. So here you go. Here's question number one. What's your most embarrassing moment? Or maybe just a recent embarrassing moment. I'll give you the choice. Oh, a recent embarrassing moment. Oh, my goodness. Oh, okay. Well, there's actually kind of a two-parter to this. This is super recent. I don't have a very good memory. So this was actually just in class. I, I do teach as well at, at NYU. I'm, I'm back to teaching again. And I was in class and I do the thing, which is funny because I actually call it the question game. And so I have the students bring in questions and they ask each other. So I call on one of them and then the first person has to ask the question about the text. So these are not personal mm-hmm. questions. These are questions about pretty pretty heavy duty texts. We were actually reading St. Augustine and Montaigne this week. So not easy stuff. And one of them has to ask the, ask the other one. And then, then, then that person who was being asked then gets the opportunity to ask the next person, person and I call on them. So they don't know when they're going to you know, they don't get any choice in this. So it's quite mean of me, but also extremely entertaining. And so this, uh, this one student said, Hmm, let me think about that. And he, you know, like the confidence in this, you know, there's 20 students who are all looking at him. And I tell you what, I was dying. I was like, what do I do if he just never starts talking again? I was like, is this a mistake? Is this whole game premise that I've got going on a mistake? Like, should I put a timer on it? What do I do? And I swear to you, I was the one that started sweating, you know, because I was like, how do I stop this? Right? We're all just totally silent waiting for this kid to come up with his answer. And, um, and finally, he did. Finally, he did start talking. And I, so it was embarrassing because I didn't have a way to get out of it. And thank goodness he Mm -hmm. had something to say. And then I'll say there was one other little embarrassing bit to this is that another kid started talking about professors and how, you know, his generation, they all think that they know more than their professors. And I said, ouch. And all all the kids laughed. So I I got back a little bit of a little bit of street cred there. That's awesome. This is just a a random thing that I'm thinking about in terms of you being teaching as a blind person and what, what, how receptive your students are to that or not, or what that experience has been like for you. It has been weird coming back. I have to say one, a couple of odd, odd things about it. One is we've got to wear masks, right? And so, um, I have to say that I am a blind person that since I've lost more vision in the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years or so, I do in situations like that feel more comfortable with with sunglasses on, I feel like I can kind of fake them out in terms of um, eye contact. I, I feel yeah. like it, uh, I, it somehow it feels kind of powerful to me to be able to do that. I do um, too. And, yep. But do you? Yeah. And yep. so I am, but I can't, I feel like I can't do it. Right. Because if I'm wearing sunglasses with a mask, I basically have no face and that seems a little <laughs> mean. <laughs> right. 
Seems yeah. all, all I got is like some eyebrow action, maybe. But that's yeah. <laughs> so it's very interesting. I feel quite vulnerable in terms of, you know, when someone's talking or if they move around or if they're not where I think they are. Um, and it's all me, right? It's all my own sort of, a, you know, internalized ableism in terms of like, I mean, who gives a damn, you know, if I look at the wrong person or look in the wrong direction, it really doesn't matter, you know, but it, 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 it has made me feel a little bit more awkward than, than I used to. I will say that, but in general, the kids, I shouldn't even call them kids. That's, you know, I mean, they're, they're the young students. adults, right? They're yeah. like 18 to 22, you know, so they are definitely students and, and adults and um, they completely run with it for the most part. You know, I think a couple That's of great. them might be a little uncomfortable in the beginning, but Hey, a little discomfort never, never killed it. Never anyone, hurt. So, That's right. Yeah. Well, we're playing out of time and I would spend hours and hours having this discussion with you, but I just want to thank you so much for sharing your experience on the podcast and uh, look forward to whatever it is you do next and whatever our collaboration might be. Yeah, I look forward to your visit to New York City and thanks so much for having me. This is awesome. Before we let you go, I want to share with you this quote of the day by Degas. Art is not what you see, but what you make others see. Thanks for listening to Accessing Art with Amy. This podcast is produced by me, Amy Amanti. Technical production by Jacob Shemansky and Sam Robinson. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. If you'd like to reach out to the show with any of your thoughts or questions, you can reach us by email at feedback at ami.ca or by telephone at 1-866-509-4545. Thanks again to my guest today, Leona Godin. Keep exploring. See you next time. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.